All right, friends, let's pray, and then we'll dive in tonight. Father, as we come to the close of this day, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your strength, your uniqueness. We thank you that you are love and that you are good and that you are holy. Commune with us now, we ask. Be with us, we pray, as we share what you're doing and discern your kingdom among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends. Well, um, Ben preaches past Sunday on what is typically known as the fall, not autumn, but the fall of humanity. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I think, I, I mean, obviously I would have preached it uh, a little differently, but uh, a lot of things struck me from the stuff that Ben preached. So uh, because he's not here and because he made some promises on group me that I'm not sure I'm able to fulfill uh, in terms of topics to chat about, I would love to hear uh, what was stirring for you, what grabbed you, what struck you, or things that you would like to chat about tonight. So let's, let's jump in. Who wants to share first? I can share. Um, I was with the kids, so I just listened to it uh, earlier today. And uh, as I was hearing, I was thinking, we need another axiom. <laughs> uh, that the, the good news proclaimed there um, just seems like it's such a big thing. And it, we see it weave through, other, through all the other axioms too, like you know, Jesus is like God, and we talk about compassionate curiosity and how we respond to digging and stuff, but, um, but that God responds to our sin with compassion um, was big. Because growing up, and uh, just kind of the way just was kind of assumed to be is that God responds to sin by separation and wrath. And, uh, and I could probably hear that good news, that God responds to sin with compassion um, about, you know, 10, 20 times a day, and it would do me good. Yes, Ryan. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? The rest of Genesis 3, which I'll be preaching on this Sunday, uh, bears that, that out even more, uh, what Ben proclaimed this past Sunday. Uh, I don't know if that struck anybody else, too. Uh, definitely uh, struck me in the sense that uh, this is something that's been a major shift. I guess, I guess the thing you're talking about, uh, Ryan is meant to be encapsulated by God is like Jesus. And so what we see Jesus do is move towards sinners unless they say they're without sin. Like the only way, the only reason he doesn't move towards people is when people say they don't need a doctor. Right? So it's, it is meant to be encapsulated in that axiom but I agree with you that there's, there's something profound about that. Um, this idea, though, that God cannot look upon sin. He's so holy, he cannot look upon sin. You know where that comes from, don't you? Anybody know where that comes from? Isaiah and I are saying Augustine. You know, that's a good but scapegoat. He's a good scapegoat for most of the things that are, that are kind of wonky in Western Christianity. So typically Augustine is in the top three. I mean, I'm, I'm really applauding that he's a, good, he's a good guess. And he may have taught this. But my understanding is it didn't originate with him. It actually originates in the Old Testament. There's actually a verse that says this. And again, I'm glad we have our Old Testament expert. 
on the line here. I'm looking for the actual verse and reference. I'm pretty sure. Here it is, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12. Gather around, everyone. Are you not from of old, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? You shall not die, O Lord. You have marked them for judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? So there's this verse in Habakkuk where we get this idea from. Uh, but if I had time, I wasn't prepared to do this, but if I had time, I'd read the rest of Habakkuk where God actually does look on the unrighteous and does seek out the unholy. So there's this way of communicating that God is not party to or complicit in people's evil. Uh, but then the overwhelming witness of the Old Testament, including Genesis 3 and Jesus, is that this, this one verse doesn't summarize God's posture to sin or sinners. That's my best hypothesis about where it comes from. But Isaiah and Josie may be right. I'm sure Augustine picked up on this. We do, get, we do get the idea of the fall as we now constitute it from Augustine. He's the one who talks about the fall the way most of us are used to hearing about it. He's the one who makes a big deal of it and sort of codifies that understanding of it. Yeah, good. Thanks, Ryan. Thoughts about that or other thoughts you have? get all the power and say about what we think and believe. Oh boy, Becky. That's a long conversation. I mean, I'm not a church historian, friends. Um, but there's a couple of things at play there that occur to me. One is, is that Augustine is one of the first church fathers post-Constantine. And so there is a sense in which the state now is an extension of the church. And so he gets greater sort of hearing and gravitas and capital among the Roman Empire. And so his writings have become sort of official documents, whereas before it's sort of the minority report, it becomes the majority report with Augustine. Um, and then I may be getting this wrong, but I think Augustine, before he became a believer, was a Manichaean lawyer. And so um, you can look up Manichaeans. They have some interesting beliefs. But a lot of Augustine's influence on Christianity is picked up by one of the greatest theologians of all time, John Calvin. John Calvin makes use of Augustinian thought. Uh, they're both lawyers, so they both kind of have a, uh, they both bring out the motif of law and law court and God as judge in their theology because it resonates with their conceptual world. And John Calvin has had a definitive shaping on modern post-revivalistic evangelical Christianity in America. Probably John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. Those three, the big guns. And all three of them made a lot of use of Augustine. So those would be the two things that occur to me, Becky. There's probably better or other reasons too. I don't know if anybody else has thoughts about that. Oh. I was gonna, I would say too that um, that Augustine is just 
fits really well with the modern American mind um, because, or just the modern Western mind, because uh, for him, it's very individual driven. Like when you read him, like his, his confession is just like his own personal inner prayer journey towards God. Um, it just really fits well with sort of like a Western individualistic mindset. Um, yeah. And I don't know if we get our inward turn, like sort of our sense that like the way we find God is by looking within us. Right. It's like a very, uh, uh, evangelical sort of way of thinking about the world perhaps, but, um, from him or if, uh, we share it from some common source, but that also fits, I would say too. So he fits nicely with how we already want to think about the world. Yeah. Good thoughts, Isaiah. I was, I was being cheeky before about Augustine and blaming him. He, he's got, uh, he's actually one, like his, the best of Augustine is in like my top three church fathers. Uh, but the worst of Augustine is in the bottom three of my church fathers. So he's, uh, he's kind of all over the map for me. Uh, but yeah, that might be, I think that you may be onto something there, Isaiah. Yeah. Great, friends. Other thoughts or questions or, or uh, things that you feel like the Lord is pressing upon you? I think my, my big take home was um, same with Ryan and probably a lot of us about God's compassion and, and how he moves towards us. And I've been pondering, you know, just how I, how I react to my daughter when, you know, she does something that is clearly not what I would want to see happen or to see her do. Um, but, you know, the, my heart is that it breaks for her because she's hurting herself and um you know she's fracturing her her inner self when she does these kinds of things so i that really helped me to sort of understand um in a real world like my world sense uh, about god's compassion and then just also reflecting on yeah how i how i how I have seen God um, over the years that whether I've had this image of him as, you know, this God coming down to punish me for my sin versus um, how I've really been molded on the other hand, by the reality that, that he loves me and that, that that has to come out of compassion, that kind of love um, that he's, he's for me. He's not against me. He's, he wants to see me grow. He doesn't want to see me pushed off in the corner and wallow in my sin, which, um, yeah, I think is, is a lot of what I've heard uh, throughout uh, my life. So, yes. Um, I mean, even just the, at the communion table, like we, we celebrate, when I was growing up, it was quarterly. And, you know, the pastor, was, there was no um, confession of sin, and assurance of pardon. There was no entering into or preparing your heart for communion, but it was a little tack on the end of the service. And the pastor would say, I hope I haven't already said this here before, but the pastor would say, well, if your heart's not right with the Lord, please abstain from taking communion today. Mm. And I think maybe I did mention this before, but um, just that, that sense of um, that's not, that's not Jesus inviting us to the table. It's someone else putting up the wall. Um, to the table, um, but that, that Jesus wants us at the table. And so his, his heart is that, that we would come and, and be a part of fellowship with him, whatever our state is, because we're never going to be without sin. I will never be without sin. Otherwise, I could never come to the table if that was the criteria. Yes. Yes. Really good. Anybody else experienced what um, Ryan 
and Nancy are talking about when it, as it, like this, this shift in thinking about a God who is recoiling, hiding himself or actively moving out sort of like, can I search, can I search the world to find somebody who's offended my holiness so I can smite them versus this picture that we see that Genesis, that, that Genesis uh, demonstrates and that Ben proclaimed about a God who comes looking for us calls and calls us to back into relationship and then um, is, is a God who seeks to save rather than a God who is offended and smiting. Is anybody else relating with this? this yeah, I, I spent, um, I grew up in a church where I feel like um, there was an undertone of shame hmm. um, and I spent several years in a community really like unlearning that. So I don't think that it's a pervasive view for me right now, but I would say that it marks like my growing up years um, in a culture, like it was a holiness tradition. And so this idea that just feeling like if you didn't have everything together or right, there was a lot of guilt and shame attached to that. Like, I mean, I remember multiple like I got saved so many times <laughs> because it was this fear of like you know like oh I've messed up again I need you know like I would I remember so many times even like my teenage years hearing a salvation message and being like oh no I feel guilty I better I better pray this prayer to make sure I'm okay still yes yeah, and so there. I think I think this this impulse comes from the right place. I think we've somehow bought into the lie that if we accumulate and leverage the same shame that Ab and Eve felt after they sinned, if we heap that on ourselves more, then we will somehow attain the holiness that our shame tells us we don't have. There's the, I think, I think there's, the, there's a difference between guilt and toxic guilt. There's a difference between, I think, shame and toxic shame. I'm, and I'm less clear about shame and toxic shame, to be honest. Uh, but I'm pretty clear about guilt and toxic guilt. In terms of how to delineate between the two. Can you say more about that, Matt? Uh, about what? I could say well, more about anything anytime. Everything. <laughs> you can say more about everything. Well, about, um, yeah, how we, if we heap enough shame on ourselves, um, that, I mean, so, so say more about the toxic shame and the shame. Yeah. 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 Well, I think the caricature of it is, this is how I know I've really repented. I have... I have made myself feel awful for what I've done. Mm -hmm. Right. And I've taken these verses about a hard hearted nation that um, commits atrocities and either doesn't blink an eye or calls it good. That tells them to put on sackcloth and ashes and wail. And I've, I've basically internalized that as this is the only appropriate way for me to show proper contrition and remorse for anything I do wrong. And what it ends up becoming is, it ends up becoming like I use my own shame to merit God's forgiveness. And to demonstrate that I'm legit. Now, I think there are shameless people who, for instance, would tell you they've never had to ask forgiveness for anything. Who probably do need to put on sackcloth and wail. But a vast majority of people I meet tell me what Ryan and Becky tell me. And this is my story too. Which is, I'm not shameless. I feel like shame ridden. 
right? And this, this deeper, more pervasive love, this is why I preached on created goodness, original goodness is stronger than this original sin stuff. Because that, like, that foundation then allows for me to experience guilt. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. And, and run towards love as repentance rather than running towards self-contempt or self-condemnation. Um, I wanted to say, too, that um, when Ben was talking about how his automatic reaction is defense when something like um, somebody confronts him, I'm not saying I've never done that, but it's not my natural stance. My natural stance is shame. And I just, when somebody confronts me, I assume I'm in the wrong whether I am or not. Like, I don't, I don't often get defensive. It's more of a, I just, I have enough layers of shame and felt like I had just was heaped in it growing yeah. up. Yeah. And I spent so much time undoing that but it's still in my body to a degree that if somebody tells me I've done something to hurt them or that's wrong, I feel like I'm suffocating under a mountain of it. Yes. Whether or not it's true. So their accusation of you confirms your own internal accusation. Absolutely. Yes. And I would say, I would say um, that readiness to believe accusation is evidence of toxic shame. Now, being defensive, like Ben was talking about, can also be evidence of toxic shame, right? So those are, those are, two, those are two strategies we have to deal with the well, lie of inward shame. There's a big difference between shame and guilt, too. So guilt is I did something wrong, and shame is something's wrong with me. Uh-huh, yeah. So if any time that you're feeling that, it's toxic. Yes. Although this is where I'm unclear about this. And this is sort of a rabbit trail. So maybe this is, this will only be uh, interesting to me. Um, I don't know how to do this except to be a little crass. So I apologize. And if I need to have a DTR after this with anybody, we can do this. But like, if I was sitting here, like in, uh, without a shirt on, right? Like, I don't know, doing something we would consider inappropriate, right? And I felt no shame about it. Like, probably if I showed up without a shirt on, like listening to ACDC really loud that you all could hear, um, Somebody would go, hey, Tebby, what the heck is wrong with you? Put a shirt on. And so there would be some sort of healthy, maybe there's something wrong with me, if I think this is okay. So this is hard to talk about because we don't live in an honor-shame culture. So maybe, Nancy, you can help us understand this better. But me wearing a shirt and not blurring music behind me is the way that I'm honoring the social construct of this, of this gathering. And, and if I violate that, it's a shameful thing. I'm, I'm dishonoring you. I'm dishonoring our relationship. But if I do that without any awareness that something's wrong, maybe I do need to to realize there's something wrong with me. So Becky, I'm prone to agree with you. Like 98% of me agrees with you, but I keep thinking about there are people who don't know there's something wrong with them and they cause devastation in the world. And a little 
what's wrong with me would be really healthy for them. I just don't agree that shame is the best word for that. Good. What is it then? Uh, Self-awareness would be a better word. <laughs> I just think that, like, to me, anytime that I see shame, like, it just feels like such a negative thing. And maybe that's because of my own story. Yeah. Um, but I just don't, I, like, like, because when you talk about, like, even in kids, like, you don't see shame a lot in kids. And when they do experience it, it's kind of like a heartbreaking thing. Yeah. I think you want them to have wisdom and discernment and self-awareness. But if they could have that without ever experiencing shame, that would be a beautiful thing. Yeah. No, I, again, I said 98% of me agrees with you. But I feel, I mean, we're just, we're really just arguing over semantics probably at this point. So. Well, I also have friends that are really, really attracted to the kind of God that, that you and Ryan and Nancy just talked about. I have friends that won't ever talk about the goodness of God and the love of God without reminding people how awful they actually are and how much they don't deserve it. So for them, so for them, they can't mention God's mercy without also mentioning your wretchedness. Um, and I, I mean, this might be just be me, me playing Dr. Phil here. Right. So this could be just complete conjecture, but like, I know these people and they're not idiots and they're not psychopaths, but I think they actually, some of them actually need to remind themselves that their, that their poop actually stinks. You know, like they, they actually need like verbal reminders that I'm not God's gift to everybody at all times. And so there seems to be this, kind of personality type that does that maybe is shameless that doesn't feel shame the way you and i do Becky. and so for them this god that they talk about really loudly is one way that they remind themselves of it I don't know why else it appeals to them, to be frankly honest. Yeah, so this is a radically different way. Like in our DNA groups, we're going to get to talking about how God deals with us in grace and truth. And we see that in Genesis 3 here. It is amazing when we look at this and we hold up these narratives we've adopted in the church how it just doesn't fit. We just don't see God doing it. And it's striking to me. It's challenging, it's striking. What else, friends? I know, Josie, you brought up what in the Jiminy is this tree doing in this garden anyway, a few weeks ago, right? Ben sort of talked about that a little bit. I don't know if that was sufficient or satisfactory for you, or if you still have thoughts about that. Um, I mean, to be honest, I need to re-listen to the sermon because Phoebe was trying to talk to us the whole time we were trying to listen to him. And I was like, oh, he's talking about the tree. And didn't really hear anything. <laughs> So I'll, I'll have to re-listen to it, but I'm sure I'll really appreciate it. <laughs> I will say though, Matt, I think you know, thinking of the whole, the whole mindset that many, that maybe many of us have adopted on, okay, you know, I always have to talk about God's wrath in addition to mercy, right? Or how I'm like nothing. And um, I'm just so blessed that I can even, you know, be called a Christian. 
for me, I've noticed that this sort of thinking is especially pervasive by people who get really frustrated with like American prosperity gospel or um, just like American individualism. You know, like, and there it could be people who don't feel shame, but I think a lot of people just have a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to the prosperity kind of like rhetoric or when there's so much focus on um, like goodness when they've seen maybe so much, so much that's bad that we've, we have done as a society. So I, I do think there's like a lot here. I was actually reflecting on it today, how like I, I agree with Ryan, with Nancy and Becky, like I need, for me, I feel like I need to hear that when I am in sin, God moves towards me with compassion also like 10 times a day. <laughs> um, and how I think it's still good to also live in that tension of there is something good about having grace and mercy. You know, like there is something there about God's holiness too. Um, even though it right now, maybe in my faith, like as soon as I hear original sin or like, I am worthless. I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not what I want to believe. Like I'm still, I decided today, like I just need to be okay with maybe just kind of living in that tension there and reminding myself that there is like a grace and a holiness that's important. Um, so anyway, I don't mean to ramble, but yeah, just something I was reflecting on today. Yeah. Thank you, Josie. That's good. Yeah. I don't know. This one part of what you shared kind of is, is like sticking in my head. Like this phrase, I am worthless. I'm curious as to how that got to become such an accepted canonical part of our theory. We don't even question it. It just seems faithful. I don't know, but it's stupid and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that I agree with you, Becky. And, and like, I, I, if we're as worthless as we say we are, like, what is God doing? Why is he wasting his time? Why is he giving us all these mixed signals? You're made of my image. You're my treasure possession. You're my beloved. I've watched you. I've, I want to nourish and cherish you. Like, I've staked, I've staked my sort of kingdom agenda on you participating in my grace. Like, it just seems to me, it's such a, it's such a lousy way to describe who we are. It seems like a way that the church has tried to control people. Um, into just and like manipulate them yeah. into being good. Yeah. And as I say that, I was thinking about um, when I was, I think it was in Spain, I was in a museum and they had this technique where they had removed frescoes off of old churches that were up in the mountains and like put, were able to put them in the walls at this museum. And so they had this room that was set up like an old church. And as you walked in, it was these pictures of like biblical stuff and Jesus and things. But then as you turn to leave, it's like hell, fire and brimstone and people being tortured. So it's like, just so you don't forget, you better behave yourself or that's what's gonna happen to you. 
Um, and I feel like that's like, that, it's, it's that same issue. Like that's what we're doing to people still. Hmm. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Can I say something? Get in here, Joel, get in. I, I, I think I, I tend to agree with you, Becky, that the church has probably done a lot of things to control people <laughs> through the ages. And then I, but I'm, I'm wrestling with the, cause, cause I, I, to some extent, like, I feel like this used to be the way I used to see things like, and I'm no stranger to shame myself. I don't need any help feeling shame. I feel it 25 hours a day and eight days a week. <laughs> and, um, and I remember, and so I'm, I'm going, what, what, what was it about? Is it a misunderstanding of like God's holiness and God's love? Like, God, well, of course, the, if I'm this bad, if you're this bad, see how bad we are? Well, God loves you. And man, imagine how great that love is if he loves you when you're such a horrible person. There's that. And then I also think of this word holiness and holy and like how much I know that for at least myself, I used to, I used to equate that with like moral perfection. Like holiness is another way of describing God's moral perfection. And so we strive to be holy, like God, m morally perfect. But I, but lately I'm, I've been asking, is that even what holiness is? Is holiness have something to do with God's otherness? And God is other, but it doesn't really have to do with what we, what I consider moral perfection. And so this idea of God's holiness and being morally perfect and not being able to look upon us in our non-morally perfection. Um, I don't know. I think it's, yeah, I don't have any answers, but just that's, that's what I'm thinking about right now. Someone care to interpret that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah ma'am I don't know other people have thoughts about that I mean I've got thoughts but... Andrea go I well I do but I have like I'm swimming in like three different waters in my head so it might be easier like I'd rather, almost rather hear what you have to say and then maybe I can like figure out how to organize what's going on in my head. That's okay. <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, there's, we could talk about this for weeks, buddy. Here's what immediately occurs to me. We don't know the first thing about God's love. Because if we did, we'd have no confusion about what makes God so holy. What God makes, what makes God so fully different than us uh, isn't, uh, is his love. But that's not typically how we talk about holiness. Yeah. No, yeah. no. No, and so we could get into a really esoteric discussion about how classical theology was influenced by Euripides and the Greek Platonists. And there's these ideals about who God must be. He must be perfect and unchanging. And how there's parts of this that are like true. But then what happens if we read God through a Platonistic Greek philosophy? of who God must be, then everything God has revealed to be in Jesus is nonsensical.
And so holiness becomes this perfect ideal, this pristine perfection, rather than who Jesus revealed holiness to be. So, so we have people who are more concerned with being whatever this ideal of holiness is than actually being like Jesus. I think yes, Joel. I mean, I think <laughs> the Pharisees are like the perfect example, right? Because I, I mean, I kind of think the fallacy is like, well, for the Pharisees, Anyway, like if we just, if we just know what these standards are that we have to do, and then we just make sure we, we stay like within these lines and we'll, we'll make sure we know exactly where all those lines are. That way God won't take his presence from us. Like we're ensuring that like we are maintaining God's favor and relationship. And I don't think it's always out of a bad place. Like for, I mean, for some people it's a matter of power, I'm sure. I mean, it was for like the Sadducees and stuff, but for, for some people, I think it is a matter of like, we don't want God to take his presence away. So what can I do to ensure that like that I stay in that right relationship with God? And I think that's where like that concept of love just blows all of that out of the water because love isn't defined in those ways. And, and I think I, I really, I kind of had a struggle like after listening to Ben's sermon because on the one hand, I'm like, yes, like I was hundred percent like on board. I feel like, and especially like hearing Ben wrestle with that out of his own experience. Um, I was like, well, I don't want to like, I'm not trying to say like, I want to negate that. But my thought that I kept having was, but when I read scripture, like I see God's wrath and I see God's anger and I see like these things happening. And so then how do we make sense of that when we're talking about God's love? And as we've all been talking I think something I've been sorting through in my head, whether it's like with guilt or shame or love is um, I think even with God's anger with God, or with guilt or shame, it's God wants it to be restorative. And when God, you know, out of God's love, when he relates to us in those things, it's toward restoration and it's moving us toward relationship with him. And I think maybe that's like, for me, the difference between toxic shame and good shame is good shame is restorative and it moves us to goodness and it moves us to love. And so the example I was thinking about, it's like my mom's Korean. So that's like a very honor shame society. And she's like livid with her siblings right now because her mom's like has dementia and they put her in a nursing home. And it's only been really recently in Korea that like families don't take care of people. Like it's just like a really new phenomenon, like probably in the last 10 years that people will put their parents in nursing homes. And so my mom's like livid about it. And I think in her head, she would never, she would never describe it this way. But from like me standing back and looking, I think she's like, do you have no shame that you would not take care of your own parent? And so I think as we've been talking about it, I, and I was thinking like, whether that's like when God expresses anger, I think he's always moving toward people toward restoration when he's expressing anger. And even like that Habakkuk passage I'm like not a minor prophets person. That's not really like my focus. But as I was like looking at the context, it's very much about like all of these injustices are happening to people. And I think that needs to be part of the conversation is like, um, it's okay. I mean, we want it. We really need to be aware of like, especially for those of us who feel shame really deeply, which is pretty much all of us. I mean, in, in our personal relationship with God and then like as a church too, but you know, we're, we're going to overshame ourselves and we need God's rest restorative voice to speak to us. But when we're talking about like major injustices happening in the world and people like people who are watching their children starve and people who are like going to prison and they haven't really done anything. They just like, there are all these societal things that are happening. Then I think it's like, yeah, I want God to be angry about that. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. How can you stand for this God? This isn't, this isn't the kind of God that you are. Like you need to be angry about this God and you need to act because these people don't have anyone to act on their behalf. So um, I think that's like some of the stuff that I was like swirling around in my brain as we were talking. I don't know if that, I, that doesn't talk about the holiness thing, but that's yeah. probably another conversation too. <laughs> yes. I mean, Ben, Ben couldn't get into all this. Andrea, I agree with all that. Ben couldn't get into this on Sunday and we probably need to have a protracted conversation about it. 
But if God is power and his power is control, then wrath is his anger at his will being violated. And it's, and it's like retributive punishment. Uh, if sin is primarily an offense to God's honor, then there must be a punishment that fits the offense. Like there's a justice system. This is what happens in this framework. There's a justice system that God uh, has to participate in. And we hear this with like God's honor must be, God's justice must be satisfied. Well, who's, who's God? Who, which, which, like what justice, what justice is hanging over God, right? There's this weird kind of thing that happens. But if God's love is his power, then his wrath becomes not something that you have merited by your dishonoring my power. His wrath becomes his opposition to anything that resists or is an obstacle to his love. So his, his wrath is his opposition to anything that blocks or inhibits or resists his love. And so uh, that's a great mystery about how that works. But um, that wrath then is more restorative. And it's the, it's the metaphor is not a court. The metaphor of a courtroom is used in scripture to describe some truths about God. But the metaphor then that helps us understand his wrath is a doctor's posture towards cancer and his patient's body. The doctor has wrath against the cancer, not against the patient. Just to play devil's advocate. <laughs> because I think, uh, I haven't done a lot of thinking about these frameworks. I mean, I know kind of like where I think I'm at, you know, I think I'm like on the framework you're on, but like when you talk about the flood, so this is like where I like think I could see someone like arguing from the other framework, you know, there's like God looks down upon the earth and he sees like pretty much the goodness that he's created, everything that he's created to be good is being corrupted because people are doing, you know, evil, people are doing evil, living evilly, I guess. Yep. And so he destroys the earth. Now, of course, the promise following the flood is I will never again destroy the earth. Yep. But how does that, I don't know, just like from the framework you're speaking on, how would you like relate that? I guess is my question. Yeah. Well, again, like this is like a 12-week hermeneutics course. But I'm a Christian. And so I don't read the flood without Jesus. If I was a Jew, I don't need Jesus to read the flood. But because I'm a Christian, I read the flood with Jesus. Secondly, um, we won't get to the flood in our creation, new creation series, but there's some really interesting things happening here. The way that the flood happens is the decreation of the world. So all of the, the world was formless without void. And the spirit hovered over the waters of the deep and God separated and whatever. What we see happening in the flood is the recollapsing of the primordial deep. So, so the picture we get is that the violence of humanity and their resistance to God's presence and power and provision in their lives is a decreation and a throwing the creation back into chaos. And so I would at least ask the question, Andrea, is the flood God zapping punishment or is the flood the natural outworking of the violence and decreation of humans? And God, instead of holding back the waters as he's been doing, 
he removes his hands from withholding. Like we have a very, I, this could be, uh, this isn't all to say about God, but we have a very polite God. Meaning in many ways, he respects sort of the violence and the will of people. And so, you know, there's moments when he acts, but there's moments when he withdraws. So I would say the flood is evidence of God giving creation over to his stewards and people he's put in charge and withdrawing his divine sort of creational power to hold things at bay. And what we see is basically the, uh, the world going back in the primordial deep and God bringing a new people through, saving them into a new place under a, like a renewed covenant. So I guess my question that I was getting at is how does that relate to maybe like how you were saying, like if we see God as operating out of love, how does, and maybe, you know, maybe this actually gets into more of the endings that we're going to be getting into talking about like Mm -hmm. through the series. But um, I guess just that like, I don't know, maybe I would, I maybe would just say judging just as like a convenient way to describe it. Um, Oh, I definitely, I don't know, maybe it's not, I mean, or letting people be, but then sometimes God love, you know, I don't, I don't know if you get what I'm saying. Like, and how do we, yeah. And this is where our definition of love is too puny to understand. Like when we talk about so the so I think the Eastern Church has ways that provoke our imagination to help us understand this better. Because they talk about love as being a red hot river of fire from the heart of God. And some people experience that as purification and some people experience that as burning. Depending upon their relationship to it. Right. And so like, I, I mean, when I, when Deacon was four and I was teaching him how to build fires, we were talking about this. Like if you honor fire and you, and you treat it with respect, it will give you warmth and light and enjoyment. But if you don't honor fire and you don't treat it with respect, it will hurt you and burn you and could kill you. And it's not a perfect analogy. But I, I think I think if our if if I think I think we do a disservice to what God's like the power of God's love if we don't understand that our relationship to it matters and our participation our participation in it matters. I also think too that the whoever wrote Genesis six had a veil over their eyes. I think there are multiple authors, so just get right. to go that. Right, whomever wrote it, uh, they didn't, they saw, they saw through a glass darkly. They got glimpses and images of who God is. I'm a Christian and the New Testament teaches that, so I'm bound to, I'm bound to believe that. So I think, I think it takes hard work to read something like The Flood through the lens of Jesus. And it's not something that I can do in 10 minutes. It's something the church needs to do. We need to do that work together. You know? And I think, yeah, we are going to talk about things like wrath and judgment and the endings. Because I just want to be clear. I want to be clear. Ben, ben in Proclaiming Good News isn't like defining wrath and judgment for us on last Sunday. Like, both Ben and I believe in wrath and judgment. It's just, it's better than what we've heard. God's wrath is better than what we've heard. And God's judgment is better than what we've heard.
I have a question, Matt. Yeah, dude. Um, it's about your ana doctor analogy. Sure. Um, so um, I really like the doctor analogy and I have for some time in, in a lot of ways. Like it, it, uh, it connects to one of my favorite um, metaphors for the Eucharist, which, as, which is as the medicine of immortality, which yes. is one of my favorite ways to think about the Eucharist. Um, yes. But um, I think one thing that's always been difficult for me, and obviously no metaphor is perfect, right? Yes. But it seems like the, the doctor analogy really rests on this idea that like, you know, cancer within your body, we don't really, maybe this, and maybe this isn't right, but we don't, we really see that as being different from who we are, you know? Like uh, a doctor who's upset at cancer within you, it's like, that's not, that cancer, I guess is me, but it, it also feels like a foreign object to me, I guess. Whereas I feel like I have a hard time I don't know, rightly or wrongly, making that distinction between myself and my sin. Um, like, to me, my sin feels like something that I birthed um, and that's like intricately caught up in who I am, where cancer, I, you know, seems uh, less of a choice and to be more of like a, uh, a foreign attack on me or maybe even like my body failing me. I don't know. You yeah. know, I, it's, it's complicated, right? I think. I'm asking questions both about the nature of can the relation of cancer to us and of uh, sin to us, but yeah. I don't know. I have a hard time separating in my, in my head when I hear the doctor analogy, it's like, Oh, God's not mad at you. He's just mad at your sin. Right? Like um, I have a hard time separating myself from my sin, I guess. Like it feels like, man, am I not, how am I different than my sin? Right? Like they, they feel so connected, I guess. Yes. This isn't an intellectual thing. This is more of like an emotional confession, right? Like emo emotionally, like I just feel like my, me and my sin are like uh, not the same thing, but we're also not set. We're also not separate. We're also not different things. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I use cancer as an analogy. In the past, I've used poison. Um. In the past, I've used the analogy that instead of getting cancer, we've drank poison, which does change, which does change a little bit of the agency thing, right? I didn't choose cancer. I'm not actively multiplying cancer in my body, but I, you know, I did choose to drink poison. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the, the poison cancer thing is, is coming from what's known as a medicinal or ontological atonement understanding of how the cross works on our behalf for forgiveness and healing and, re and redemption and all that. Yeah. And it has really strong church father sort of attestation. Maybe we could talk about this at some point. Um, I don't think it's the only way of seeing Christ's work in us, but I think it's a helpful way for us to conceive of wrath and judgment that is able to separate the sin and the person. I see Jesus having great love and wrath against sin and it's uh, and disease and death. And it's only when people repeatedly choose to do what you're describing, Isaiah, identify with it, that he resorts to basically the woes. You know, what were you? What do you mean by identify with it? Because I feel like, maybe, I don't know if this is right, but I feel like the way I've been taught is that it's right to identify with your sin, light, right? Like, it's like a way of taking responsibility. Like, if... Like if yes. I were to do something wrong <laughs> perpetually, as is often the case, and I was like, oh, that's not me though. You know, that's not me. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter that I, you know, <laughs> keep screwing my coworkers over. Like, it's just not who I am. You know? like, yeah. yeah. I feel like, <laughs> um, I feel like at least the way I was brought up was to be like, no, no. Like it's time you looked yourself in the mirror and are like, no, that's who you are, Isaiah. Like it doesn't, define you but it's 
know like who you are right now. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to channel my inner Becky Dunn here <laughs> and say, um, what you're describing to me. Yeah. It sounds like a perfect definition of shame. Shame, sure. shame, the, the lie that the lie of shame is you are your sin. Sure. I think the gift of God is you are not your sin. Like, I have a, I have a hard time, like, like, I, I hear that, it, and maybe it's just my, you know, the way I've been brought up resistant to it, right? But, like, I have a very, like, integrated understanding of what it means to be human in the sense that, like, I'm not, you know, I think we and our bodies are, it's really hard to separate who we are from our bodies. Um, and uh, so like, you know, like if, if I've taught myself over time to treat people in a certain way, you know, over time, like that's just become my instincts or, or if I've been taught by somebody else, like I, I, I get that it doesn't define me, but it's like, but no, like physically, like hardwired in my circuits like my brain is wired to be that way like and it feels right to acknowledge that does yeah. that make sense sure like, yeah, I, I think it's different it's different what you just described i heard as me confessing my sin versus me identifying with my sin I think it's I don't know in my head it's both like I am my body <laughs> you know in so many ways yeah um, yeah yeah I I uh I just keep thinking of all those times in scripture where Jesus says uh what do you want I want to get well all right, then take up your yeah. mat and go home. Yeah. And, and there, and there's this, there's this immediate trust. I am who you say I am. I'm, I'm not, I'm not my polio or I'm, or I'm not my uh, paralysis. Like there's this immediate responding to the new the availability of a new identity that jesus declares over people yeah and i mean i definitely yeah i definitely think that we have amazing capacity for change for sure yeah, yeah. guys this is a fascinating conversation has it has you know it's very only tangentially related to the great sermon ben preached last week <laughs> but ben let this be a lesson to you. When the, when the cat's away, the mice are going to play. I, I expected nothing different. I, I do apologize uh, to all of you uh, for not uh, uh, for not being able to, to come. I, I had a pastoral appointment that went uh, long. But anyway. Yes. But uh, I'm eager to listen to this recording now. I don't know what happened, but it sounds really interesting. Mm. Yep, you'll just have to listen. <laughs> Okay. I'm not sure what that means. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Some funny business. We got to preach about the flood, apparently. The flood? Oh, yep. shoot. The flood. We were, not, we were not planning to preach about the flood. I know. Some other time. All right. We'll work it in. No, this has been great, you guys. Really good. Hopefully not too in the clouds for everybody. These are great questions. We got to make sure we talk about wrath and judgment during a uh, new, uh, new creation, Ben, and how it all fits in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought, uh, I thought there, there might be some questions about it, uh, from, from what we were saying. 
uh, on Sunday. So, but that's where most of the wrath and judgment comes in, right? Don't you, know, you take, don't you take wrath away from me, buddy. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for showing up tonight. Thanks for bringing your great questions. Your good pushback. It's really healthy. We welcome it. We want to be a community where we can disagree. We'll see you all Sunday. Everybody sleep well. Be at peace. Rest in God's goodness. And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, guys. <laughs>